0: Had a moment where something really big was like welling up in your heart and it meant so much to you, and then you had to try to share it. And at best, you felt like 60% of what you were feeling was able to come out of your mouth. You know what I mean? Like when something's so big, that's what I feel this morning. I'm like, there's no way I can articulate what God's doing in my heart. But I think what God has done like mysteriously miraculously via the Holy Spirit in my heart, I'm praying He'll do in your heart as well. Um, and the story we're gonna read today, we're gonna start out in Matthew chapter 26, page 485, if we're using one of our blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that home with you. It's our gift to you. So um, as I've been thinking about this story, I've been thinking, uh, I think a good image is like, you know, it's easy for us to sit back and look at situations that other people are in and go, if I was in that situation, this is what I would have done. You know, we love doing that actually. Like, that's what we're all about in 2019 is going, I cannot believe he or she said or did that thing that some people find offensive and some people find just fine. You know, like, I can't believe they did that. If that were me, if I were in that situation, here's an oh, if he would have said that to me, I'd, uh, I would have shown him what was up. You know, and then the moment happens, you're like, hey, all right, stop recording. I'm not actually gonna hit, like, peace be unto you. All right, like, now that I'm actually in the situation, it's all different, right? Uh, I even think about like a, you know, if you're a soldier, which I, I do not know anything about. I have a dad and a grandfather that was in the military. But I would imagine that talking about going to war strategizing, going to war, having a game plan is one thing, but actually showing up on the shore, showing up in that spot and bullets coming your way, that's totally different, right? I imagine that when, when things get to that point, that's when the truth always reveals itself. Like no lies, no facades, none of those things can survive like when the moment is intense enough, right? The more intense life gets, the more truth we get to understand about how our hearts are built, right? And we're about to, to just cover some details that maybe for some of you, you've heard a thousand times, and some of you are going to hear them for the first time, but just know that Jesus is at a moment where life is intense, and the truth about his heart will be revealed. That when you go through moments like what we're going to read in Jesus here, when, when you're going through what he's going through, only the truth of his heart will be revealed, all the lies will burn away. They're not gonna be there, and not that there are lies in Jesus's heart. Whoops, that's not what I was insinuating, all right? But only the truth about who Jesus is will be revealed here. And so just to catch us up, if you're unfamiliar with Jesus, uh, Jesus is this guy who has said some pretty audacious things so far in his life, all right? He's been doing public ministry for three years. He kind of shows up on the scene saying crazy things from the get-go, all right? Like if you open up Mark, he's like, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And some of you go, yeah, that's what Jesus does. That's what he says. But if you didn't know Jesus, it'd be pretty odd if a guy walked up and started saying, repent, like change your mind, turn from your ways, the kingdom of God is here. And I'm like the guy that's gonna roll this thing out. And you'd be like, all right, chill out. You know what I'm saying? This guy is insane, right? So Jesus comes out saying that, but he doesn't just say stuff, right? He goes to the synagogues, the places that were all the religious elite are, and he blows their minds with the way that he talks about scriptures, But it's crazy because he doesn't just talk about scripture. He starts doing stuff that's super weird, all right? Like people that are dead start living again when Jesus tells them to, right? Like Lazarus is dead for four days, whole family weeping. Jesus says, come out, he comes out, right? It's crazy stuff. Like there's 20,000 people who are hungry, need food, and all we've got is a little bit of bread and a little fish, and Jesus prays and somehow multiplies it. Weird stuff going on. Jesus didn't swim as much as he walked on water. Just crazy things were going down with Jesus. So he's not just saying things, he's doing things. And people are taking note. And like any great leader, he's polarizing, right? When a leader is amazing what they do, typically you got two sides. You're either all in or all out. So Jesus had had some people that have went, this guy is legitimate, he is a truth teller, and I'm leaving it all to follow him. And they did. They they quit their jobs, left their family, like, and they followed Jesus. But others went, this guy is full of it, He's a threat to our power and we must silence him. We're gonna end his life, right? That was the two sides that were really happening. It was crazy stuff. And so where we're gonna join in on this story. Jesus is having this, this meal with his disciples, okay? It's called the Passover meal. Just to give you a little context here. The Passover was celebrated. Um, all, it's, it's rooted back in the story of Exodus where the Israelites uh, are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years uh, and God delivers them. And the night before he delivers them, he tells them to make their meal with haste. Like, be ready, be light on your feet, be ready to exit Egypt, I'm about to deliver you. And so when God delivers them out of Egypt, this amazing, miraculous moment, they start celebrating the Passover meal. Every year they get together, they share the same meal to remember and reflect that God is a deliverer of his promises. And so that's where we're joining in. Jesus is with his disciples at this Passover meal to reflect on on what God has done. And as we start reading through this story, please keep in mind, okay, Jesus knows knows it, he is going to die soon, okay? He's actually talked about it multiple times before this moment. Like that John three sixteen verse that some of us know, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, like to die, right? It's like Jesus knew he'd been preparing the masses. Now he's gonna start preparing his disciples. Here's what's about to come. And just imagine, okay? Don't let this story just pass you by. Really dig in here. Imagine knowing you're going to die in like an hour. Like in like 24 hours, really soon, it's all about to go down. Imagine what would be going through your mind. Imagine knowing you're gonna die, being with your closest friends. What would you sound like? What would you say? How would you be? For me, I'd be like, everyone shut up. It's going down, okay? I need y'all's help. <laughs> like listen, this is not good, right? So like that's me, I'm just panicking, anxiety, like what in the world? Like let's, let's figure this out, let's prevent this thing that I know is gonna happen, right? That would be me. Maybe, I don't know. I had never been in that situation. But we're joining Jesus in that exact situation. It's not a metaphor, not a joke. He's actually in the situation. And I just want us to pay attention to how Jesus talks, the things he says, who he's talking to. I think it's gonna be really powerful. All right, so we're in this this Last Supper, Matthew 26, verse 26. And I want you to pay attention because he's gonna be going to begin preparing his disciples in a powerful way. You're gonna notice as I read through this, he's gonna prepare them on a, on, a, on a big picture level first, okay, the macro level. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is going, okay, take this bread and remember my body. Take this juice, this wine, and remember, it's juice here, it's wine in the scriptures, okay? Take this wine and remember my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is doing something amazing right here, okay? When he's facing the end of his life, he begins to mentally prepare the disciples, all right? This reminds me of a story that's like a below average uh, metaphor or example of what's actually happening here. But when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, I was watching this basketball game. It was this basketball tournament. There was like tens of thousands of people in the Georgia Dome, which is no longer RIP. It got demolished. But at the time, it still existed. I'm in there, I'm watching basketball and a thunderstorm had hit. And uh, it started to sound extra loud. The thunderstorm was a little louder than normal. And I actually started to notice up above me that the, the, the scaffolding, or not the scaffolding, that the walkway, the big metal thing up there starts shaking, okay? And I remember being like, that is interesting. Like, that, it's that much of a thunderstorm out here. And then I look over because I hear something, and off in the distance, no lie, a hole had been blown into the wall, okay? There's a hole. In the wall. I can't even explain it because there's normally not holes in these kind of places, all right? But there's a hole over there. And I remember I, I look at my dad and go, Is that normal? Like, are we, are we all still chilling? Like, is this cool over here? And my dad was like, Yeah, it's designed to do that. And that's where my instincts were divided, right? My common, inst- my common sense instincts were going, no, no, that is not true. That is a lie. But my like father-son instincts were going, all right, I guess everything's good. We're good. That's interesting. All right, game on, you know? Um, but then nuts, I'm not kidding, nuts and bolts start falling from the ceiling and like hitting people, okay? And uh, everyone starts getting up. And then I watch the players, the referees, That this is on TV, it's a true story. Players, referees, coaches, teams, all leave. I don't know if you've ever been to a basketball game. No one typically leaves in the middle of it, especially the players, okay? They all exit to the locker room. Everyone then sees them that as a sign, it's time to go. All right. Everyone gets up, starts running. And my dad just kind of sits still like, hey, it's okay. It's okay. I was like, I don't think it is okay anymore, but he's just trying to keep me cool. You know what I mean? And so uh, a few hours later, we're walking outside. We survived. Here I am. I- I'm here. And, uh, and there's shattered glass everywhere. There's water leaking in random places. And I asked my dad, like, did you really think everything was <laughs> okay? He was like, no, but what are we gonna do? Like, like, no, I didn't, but I just wanted you to be cool. Like, I want you to be okay. But you know, his, that parent instinct happened, right? Like both of our lives kind of felt like they were in danger in that moment, but he was like, not a whole lot we can do. Let's just keep my kid calm. That's a really bad example of what I think Jesus is doing here, all right? So Jesus knows, like the... <laughs> That's a first. Uh, Patricio is the first man to ever clap for me mid-sermon. I appreciate that. That's amazing. Um, I take that as a compliment. So uh, th- that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going, look, everything's about to turn. It's about to get dark, for real. It's about to get bad. But when it gets bad, I want you to remember this. When you take this bread, okay, remember, this is my body, and it's broken for you. And as you drink this wine, I want you to remember, it's going to be hard to remember this in the moment because my literal blood is gonna be literally shedding from me, but I want you to remember, big picture, this is for the forgiveness of sins. Take a moment, it's very Jesus to say, this is my body and this is my blood, because we've heard it a thousand times, but take a moment and accept the fact that when Jesus is hours away from dying, he has not taken this moment to freak out and have all of them recognize what all he's going to do. He's going, let me get you ready, only a heart that is really deeply concerned and so in love with your group, your, deci- your people, goes, hey, I'm about to go through all this as I go through it, <laughs> like as it's happening to me. Remember, this body broken for you. This blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't just stay big picture, all right? Let's keep reading because it gets really specific. This blows my mind. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, "'You will all fall away because of me this night, "'for it is written, I will strike the shepherd "'and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. "'But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee.'" Sheesh. Peter answered him, "'Though they all fall away because of you, "'I will never fall away.'" As you get to know Peter, you'll learn he says stuff like that. (laughs) Jesus said to him, "'Truly I tell you, this very night, "'before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times.'" And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Only Jesus can do this, this is incredible. He looks at him and goes, it hasn't happened yet, but it's gonna get so bad and so scary for you that even though you left everything behind to follow me, soon you're all gonna run away. And as all of you say, we would never do it, you're going to do it. And in the same way that you all fled from me, I will come back for you and I'll bring you all back together. Only Jesus can provide hope in a situation like this one. It hasn't even gotten bad yet and he's already given hope for when it gets bad. You know, it's it's an incredible thing he's doing here. In Luke, uh, Jesus looks at Peter in this same conversation and goes, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the brothers." Rowney right says, you're gonna deny me? So he says, hey, Satan's coming for you. But I have prayed, imagine looking Jesus in the eyes and he goes, I've prayed for you. Jesus is about to die. All of it's happening to him. None of it's happening to anybody else. And he looks at Peter and goes, you're gonna abandon me, my best friend, my guy, my ride or die. You're gonna ride out. I I tried to connect, it. I couldn't, okay. You're gonna ride, you're gonna go away, all right? You're gonna deny me, like Satan is gone for you, but I have prayed for you. And when you're weeping tears of bitterness because you can't believe you did the thing you promised you wouldn't do, remember these words, I'm coming back. And when you get back here, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. It's unreal, on the macro level, my, my body, my blood, but on the micro level, you will abandon me, but I will gather you back. This hope in the midst of darkness. Jesus is insane. He is a hero. He's, he's beautiful. Okay, get ahead of us. Let's keep going. He, uh, he now we're going to go to verse thirty-six, where he's going to uh, take the disciples from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, now to the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, this is a very intentional move because Jesus has prepared the masses, he's prepared his disciples, and now it's time for Jesus to go talk to someone he really needs to talk to, to prepare himself. It's time for him to go to a place that he'd been before. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's gonna to talk to the Father. I've actually had the chance to be in Israel, to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and just to give you a picture of what this might look like, there's these small little, like, are they olive trees? Is that what they are? Okay, thank you, Cody, my weekly reference. Okay, the olive trees, and they're, they're kind of spread out. And, and at nighttime, it, the moonlight is really bright, so you can actually see relatively well. And it's just outside the city of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem's like right there. And so they go to the garden, and just imagine, I don't know what the, the conversation was like, but they've been singing hymns. And maybe if at the Last Supper, Jesus is calm, cool, and collected, casting vision, hey, big picture, body, blood, small picture, you're gonna deny, I'm gonna bring us back. But I think, I I just kinda sense in the disposition of Jesus, and he's gonna give us some evidence in a little bit, that as he walks to the garden, things begin to shift a little bit. They're singing hymns, but as they get to the garden, he looks at his group that walks with them everywhere, and he goes, hey, you guys stay right here. Keep watch, pray. And I wonder if he doesn't seem a little more heavy-handed, this, a little more serious, a little more like, oh, Jesus feels a little tense, we better just stay, and I ask why. A lot of times the disciples had questions, but this time they go, okay, deal. He looks at Peter, James, and John and says, hey, come, come with me a little closer. You know when you've got a big group of friends, but then you've got those, like, one or two, those one or two people that you're like, no, but that's, when everything hits the fan, this is who I talk to. Peter, James, and John are those people for Jesus in this moment. He says, y'all come a little further. And I want you to capture this, okay? Accept this truth right here. He looks at them in the most heartbreaking sentence. He goes, I need to read the scripture. Verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Another passage says, that he says, my soul is distressed to the point of death. In all of scripture, no other person, no other writer tries to depict stress on this level. I would argue that in the world's history, no one had felt stress on this level. He looks and he goes, my soul is distressed to the point of death. Luke would say he would sweat like drops of blood. This powerful moment where the disciples look at Jesus, the same Jesus that was taking a nap on a boat right before it capsized. And the disciples are like, Jesus, if you don't wake up, we are all dead. He wakes up, calms the storm, and goes, where was your faith? They're like, what do you mean, where was the faith? Like, what are you talking about? He's just calm and cool. The same Jesus that in front of thousands of people who were going from hungry to hangry at a rapid pace, he goes, hey, what do we got? Fish, bread, okay, let me take care of this. right, help me hand this out. Calm and cool. The same Jesus that town after town, they wanted to stone him, they wanted to kill him just like a thief in the night would just sneak out somehow unscathed, calm and cool. They had watched Jesus time after time when they didn't have the faith. They couldn't believe. Jesus believed for them. They couldn't see them overcoming, Jesus overcame. Every time, this was Jesus, even this is what he does. But yet something's changed. Because in this moment, he looks at Peter, James, and John and shaking and he's stressed. And he goes, I am sorrowful to the point of death. I am stressed to the point of death. Have you ever had a panic attack or someone you know and love had a panic attack and seen how helpless and fragile it is? I've had close family members have those moments and just go, I can't, I can't fix it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What, what, what is happening? I think Jesus is having a similar moment. It's like, I'm distressed to the point of death where you sit here and watch. And I think some of us right now, we've always had a picture of Jesus that goes, he's fully God and he's kind of man. So that means he went to the garden and was like, hey, pray for me. All right, Father, take this cup. If not, you will be done. Okay, got it. All right, on the cross, Father, forgive him. Cool, I'm gonna resurrect. No big deal, you know? I think some of us had that view. We would never do what I just did, right? But some of us believe that. This picture is way different. The author is not trying to convince us that Jesus was this big, bad, strong warrior who didn't feel pain and wasn't scared of the cross because he wanted to save his people. He was fully God and fully man. And in this moment, he is feeling the weight of the world and goes, please stay up. I am distressed to the point of death. And he goes and he takes a few more steps and by himself, he has the most like gut-wrenching conversation. In verse 39, he says, "'My Father, if it be possible, "'let this cup pass from me.'" Jesus was not just saying this to say it. I fully believe that Jesus comes before his Father, and you can only be this intimate with God. Like, only God was allowed to see this kind of honesty in this moment. Like, Father, if it's possible, if we can go another route, let's do it. If we can change this, let's change it. If you can remove this cup, let's remove it. The same Jesus, for eternity's past, he knew this was coming. He knew it. This is the only reason he came to earth. Time after time, he told him, hey, this is what's gonna happen, this is what's gonna happen. But he gets to the moment, and he was not apathetic or unaware of the weight on his shoulders He said, Father, if there's another way, take this cup. But then he pivots in a way that I I so rarely can pivot. And I'm growing in it, and so hard for us to pivot in this way. But he goes, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. To be able to say, change it. If I don't have to die, I don't wanna die. But not what I will. Not what I will, not what I will, but your will be done. And he walks back to the disciples if you keep reading and he finds them sleeping. And he says, so could you not watch with me for one hour? So I think the prayer was a little bit longer than what we actually see here because it sounds like it was an hour. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says this powerful sentence. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. All right, so imagine being a disciple, him waking you up randomly, like kind of wiping your eyes he's like, hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the disciples are like, you're kind of dramatic. Okay, we fell asleep. What did that even mean? I'm, not, I'm too sleepy for metaphors about the spirit and the flesh, and I'm just not ready to think that way. But Jesus is like, hey, I'm gonna tell you something. For you, this is about sleep. Your flesh is tired. The spirit's willing to stay up, but your flesh is sleepy. For me, it's a little different. The spirit is willing to give up my life, to save the world, but the flesh, every survival instinct is telling me, Run. Do not do this. Jesus was so aware. The chasm between spirit and flesh, I don't believe was ever wider than in this moment where the spirit was going, go forth, love the world, give your life, eternal life through you. This is how it's done. But the flesh was going, do not do this. They do not care, survive. Every survival instinct is just screaming at Jesus. And he looks at his disciples. He goes, hey, could you stay awake? Pray, beware of temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. No one is more aware of how willing the spirit is and how weak the flesh is than Jesus in this moment. He understands the spirit in me is so willing, but I'm having to resist very real, like being a human and moving forward in this. And he goes back, and for the second time, he goes away in verse 42, he says, "'My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, "'your will be done.'" With everything he's feeling, the stress in his chest, the weight on his shoulders, he comes back and goes, hey, if if I've got to drink it, I'll drink it. And he goes back a third time, and he went away and he prayed again, saying the same words. And I want you to note, because now we're gonna transition, and from this moment on, I want you to pay attention to Jesus's demeanor. He's prepared his disciples, he's had this raw, authentic praying with the Father, Noting the tensions of spirit and flesh, whatever your will is, I'll do it. And I just sense that after he gets up for the third time and he embraces, this is the way. I've always known this is the way. This is the way. Pay attention to how he moves from here on out. We see a very, just beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, Anyway, let's just get into it. I won't talk about it. Let's just get to it. All right, so verse 45 says, then he came to the disciples and said to them, we're gonna read for a, a little bit here. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, "'Sleep and take your rest later on. "'See that the hour is at hand "'and the Son of Man is betrayed "'into the hands of sinners. "'Rise, let us be going. "'See that my betrayer is at hand.'" Jesus was not in the garden to be hidden. He knew that Judas knew where he was, okay? Uh, The garden was not some secluded place. So he gets up and says, hey, rise, Judas is here. He knew this was coming. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, "'The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him.' And he came up to Jesus at once and said, "'Greetings, Rabbi,' and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, "'Friend, do what you came to do.' And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, either amazing accuracy or terrible." Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Let's recap, Jesus 10 minutes ago was saying, take this cup from me, take this cup from me, not my will, but what you will. 10 minutes later, we see this Jesus that goes, hey, get up, sleep later on, they're here. And I'm not hiding from them, I knew they were coming. I chose the garden, I knew Judas knew the garden, he knew we would be here, it's all happening right now. And as the disciples were sleeping, they didn't have the chance to really get into the spirit because once the people come and they lay their hands on Jesus, someone, probably Peter, definitely Peter, grabs his sword starts just whipping it around, somehow manages to chop off an ear, and Jesus goes, stop, Put put away the sword. This whole time, I've been in the garden really feeling my flesh go, call down your angels. Do you think if I wanted to go to plan B, my plan B method would be you with your little sword? That would not be the plan. I would just take care of all this with a breath and I'd go up and we'd be done with this. Why do you think I was praying in the garden this whole time? He was preparing. Is this your will, Father? Is this your will? Like, if if it's your will, I'll do it. So when the time came and the people he knew would come came, he was like, who are you looking for? Friend, friend, do what you came to do. I'm ready. I'm ready. This amazing moment where Jesus is willing to give his life, I, I was struck by how this is like Judas and his, his little squad coming with their swords and stuff. He felt like, man, okay, we've got this premeditated thing on lockdown. We've got the strategy in place. Hey, when I get there, I'm gonna kiss him. It'll be really sneaky. I'll kiss his cheek. That's when you know, go get him. And Jesus is like, hey, Judas, right here. Like this premeditated murder, maybe the only one ever where a premeditated murder was more premeditated by the victim than the actual murderers. Jesus is like, I, for eternity's past, I've been ready for this. I've been preparing to give my life away. You do not take my life. I'm here. Do what you came to do. We see this willing Jesus. Jesus lets everyone in on this. Oh, hold on. That was, I was about to repeat myself. I'm sorry. That's what happens when I get off my notes. Okay, let's keep moving. Then Jesus is led to the religious council. They ask him questions. They beat him. They spit, literal spit on his literal face. And he stays silent the whole time. And the only time you see him speak, he just speaks the truth. I am who I said I am. I am the king of the Jews. That's the only time he would respond. In this time, Peter denies Jesus like Jesus said he would. The religious council delivers Jesus to Pilate, their governor. And Pilate, now we're in chapter 27, And Pilate's gonna start doing his due diligence. He's gonna start asking a lot of questions. There's a lot of charges that have been brought against Jesus. And uh, something's really unique about Jesus in this moment. I want you to read verse 14 in chapter 27. Pilate, um, but Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The governor sitting in this place, that was not rare. This was not a unique place for the governor to sit in. They had brought a criminal, or they had said this was a criminal. We're gonna end his life. And he goes, okay, it's time for me to ask questions. This is what I always do. And for years, Pilate had talked to guilty and non-guilty alike, and he had watched them lie or tell the truth, but whatever they were saying, whether it was lie or truth, it was to preserve their own life. Whatever it takes, whatever the charge is, I did not do it. Or if you know for a fact I did it, please have mercy. Like this is the guy that makes the decision. So whatever it takes to get you to change your mind about me having needing to die, having needing to die, whatever it takes to change your mind about my death, I will say what it takes. But in this moment, Pilate is struck by this. He's amazed by this. Jesus responds to no charges. He is not begging and pleading for that which he is willingly giving up. He is giving up his life in humility and in silence. And Pilate sees that Jesus is completely innocent, but he also notices that the crowds are angry and they're violent. And so he does something very politically savvy. He would have been successful today. Traditionally, he would release one prisoner, and he knew that every year he'd give a prisoner back that the people asked for. And so he goes, man, Jesus is innocent, but these guys are mad. Let's negotiate. Let's get the blood off of my hands. And he goes, hey, I've got a guy named Barabbas. You all know him. He's a convicted felon, he is very guilty, he's in prison right now. You can choose Barabbas or Jesus, who I deem innocent. And of course we know, right, the crowds respond, Barabbas. and this just insane moment, Barabbas, convicted felon, just standing there before everybody, everyone knows he's guilty. Jesus, people that have seen him do miracles, and Barabbas is chosen. They choose a guilty man over an innocent man. And little did they know, that Jesus had already made that decision. He had made the decision. He knew we were guilty people and that he would choose to give up his innocent life. He knew that he would take the place of guilt. That was always the plan here. So even when the people, in their bitterness and in their anger, they choose Barabbas thinking they've really gotten Jesus in a tough spot, Jesus was like, this was always the plan for me to give my life so that Barabbas and all people could go free. The soldiers take Jesus, they beat him, they give him a crown of thorns. If you really think about that, how cruel that is, a man that is dying and they think, what's the way we can humiliate him the most? I just imagine them putting together, crafting this crown of thorns, their hands are probably bleeding because how do you build a crown of thorns? But it's worth it. If we can shove this on his head and laugh at him and spit on him, it's worth it. They do that, they beat him. They nail him to a cross, naked. And I wanna look at a few moments that happened on the cross and just remember this whole time that Jesus is real. This is a true story. In verse 29, they put a sign of accusation above his head that simply reads, King of the Jews. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, while Jesus is hanging naked, just nailed the two pieces of wood, for anyone to observe and walk by. There's two things that happen in one verse. First, he goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So uh, the way crucifixion would work, the posture he would be in, words were a luxury, breath was a luxury. Words were a luxury. You didn't just speak if you were hanging on a cross. So when you spoke, you spoke something important. Jesus uses the luxury of speech that he barely has it says, Father, forgive them. And in the same verse, it says that people had torn up his garments, his clothes. He's naked, his clothes are on the ground, covered in blood. And if anyone's ever had a poker night, and how much fun it is to, to bet chips and see who wins, they're doing that over his clothes. He sees humans having fun while he bleeds out and suffocates to death and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> forgive them. Forgive them. That's what he says. That's how he uses his words. In verses 39 through 43 in Luke 23, that's where you get that salvation of the criminal. There's criminals on both sides. One guy mocks him. The other says, hey, will you remember me? Like, when you come into your glory? And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise today. I'll see you there. So while Jesus is on the cross, so far we have Father forgive them as people gamble over his clothes as he hangs there naked. Now he's given salvation to someone in John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, Jesus has this moment, I want you to hear this. He looks at his mom, his, his mom, okay. He looks at her and he goes, mom, this is your son. And he's looking at his disciple named John. He goes, John, this is your mom. And what he's telling them is Jesus is going, I'm not gonna be here, I'm dying. So mom, you go with him, you take care of her. And while Jesus is on the cross, he says bye to his mother. In Matthew chapter 27, 45 through 46, we get this moment where after he's handed off his mother to his beloved disciple, Jesus looks up and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This gut-wrenching phrase. It's unbelievable, but I learned later on in my life that he's actually quoting a psalm in this moment, Psalm chapter 22. A few weeks ago, we talked about this, that memorizing scripture is good because there's gonna be moments where you face something so hard in life, you fail to have words for it, and scripture will be the words for you. And Jesus takes this moment to to echo Psalm 22, where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I wanna read a few verses out of this because it says unbelievable that this is what's on his heart. I believe that Jesus doesn't have the words right now, so he's quoting this. Psalm 22, verse one says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse seven says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Jesus says, the people mocking me say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you just let God save you? Like if God sent you, he'll save you right now. Why don't you call out? This is exactly what's happening in real time. So this Psalm that was, that was years and years before, it's the same thing, it's prophetic. And then in verse 30 and 31, it says, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus is quoting this Psalm. It goes, I feel alone. My creation mocks me. They tell me to have my God save me. I'm alone. But this is so that generations yet to be born will proclaim my righteousness. This amazing moment where I don't know how forsaken Jesus felt. I imagine he felt very lonely. I don't want to get into the theology of did God like turn his, I don't know. But I know that he's quoting this psalm that goes, you will be forsaken, you will be mocked, but it will be for the good of generations yet to come. And the next thing Jesus says, the last thing Jesus says in Luke 23, 46, it says, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And as I've been thinking about this story, I've let the, the, the humanity, the, the human side of Jesus, I think, pass me by for a long time because I've actually seen the realness of it. Like, do you feel it? That last supper, that garden moment? I don't want this, but if it's your will, saying bye to your own mom. Father, forgive them as they gamble over your clothes, as you bleed out naked, like all these moments. I've realized that that Jesus said yes time and time and time again, decision after decision after decision. I think God was showing me this week. He just tell me he was asking me, what does that say about the heart of Jesus? When things are at their very worst, the truest parts of your heart come to the surface. For Jesus, guys, for Jesus to be able to transition from the supper to the garden, to the arrest, to the trial, to the mocking, to the beating, to the cross, and the whole time preparing disciples, praying to the Father, saying, Father, for him to be able to do that, only a heart that is consumed from top to bottom with outrageous love and compassion and grace and mercy for your life can see that mission through. That is the only option. No facades, no I almost all the way love you gets to survive that. No like, well, if you mess up too much, can survive that. No conditional love gets to survive what Jesus survived and eventually it took his life. But no heart that is, that, that, that is unsure can go through the things that Jesus went through. I don't know what you're, perce- I do not know. I know there are so many stories in this room right now. I know that. There are so many reasons that you have right now to assume God isn't real, or that he is real, he's a real jerk, he doesn't love you, he's kinda done, he was cool with you five years ago, but now you've done this over and over and over again, it's kinda over. I don't know what your perception has been. I don't know your perception of Christians, of church. I know some of you are here and you haven't been to church in forever. I'm sure that's true. I talked to someone earlier who hasn't been to church, they were here. Whatever your perception is, what we have just talked about is the truth. This is who Jesus actually is. There really was someone and really is someone who is fully God and fully man and is so consumed by the deepest love over your, your life. Not his life, not her, your life. Not just the like your life. He's so consumed that he went through moment by moment saying, I will drink this cup if it means the salvation of the world that for God so loved the world, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we don't celebrate Easter because some really awesome guy loved you so much that he died and stayed dead. And that we get to just reflect on a love that is really super sweet and we wish was still around. Wouldn't it be awesome to see a love like this? We celebrate Easter because in Matthew chapter 28, it says that, that women, That that after the Sabbath, they went to anoint Jesus with spices. They went to go find Jesus and and to give him a proper burial. But that when they went to find him, he was no longer there. And that Jesus lived into his promise. He said, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You're all going to flee. You're going to do the thing you never thought you'd do. But I will see you again. And I will bring you together. That actually happened We don't believe in a Jesus that was, in a beautiful love that was, in an abundant life that was. We as Christians, we believe that that abundant life, this top to bottom heart full of love, the spirit of God that's too beautiful to get our hands around is actually real. And it is available for real, for real. And that if you give your life to Jesus, if you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, he gets it all. My words my works, my ways, every bit, every nook and cranny of my life, I will give it to Jesus that he will legitimately give you the abundant life. He will legitimately give you more love, more grace, more peace, um, uh, more mercy, more all the things, all the generosity of the kingdom is yours to take hold of if you would choose this Jesus to be your Lord. And I believe that some of you are here and you've heard this story a thousand times, but today it's different. You hear God saying, this is me make me your Lord, accept me into your life, follow me, give your life to me. And he will show you this love that is not a thing of the past, but that is available right now. And so we're gonna take communion together as a church, but if you're here and you go, that's me, I need to give my life to Jesus. If you've been here a while, you know, we don't don't do this a lot. I don't come up here and just go, hey, if you wanna follow Jesus, let's go. Let's talk about it. But today is the day. Like the Holy Spirit was just telling my heart, hey, ask, ask boldly. And if it's on your heart to follow Jesus, or if you have something that's breaking your heart or something that you're wrestling through and you haven't said it yet, come hang out with me. Come talk to me in the back. I won't pressure you, it won't be weird. I'd love to have dialogue. We'd love to talk to you. We'll have some other people with respond tags if you want to talk or pray. Um, please come and do that. Follow that Spirit in your heart that's prompting you. Um, but for now, let's take communion together as a church so we can stand together. Uh, And if you guys want to, exit towards the middle. There's communion in all four corners of the room. you can return to the outside. And we'll take communion together as a church, then we'll enter into worship. You know, I was thinking in between gatherings today, I was thinking if, if scripture wanted to depict Jesus, I don't know, if it wasn't true, I feel like Jesus would have been this big, bold, like warrior in the last moments of his life but it depicts him as this like fragile, humble, loving, willing savior. Yeah, I just pray that as uh, as you think about the last moments of Jesus' life, that you would consider that when he was in the garden, when he was praying those precious words full of stress that he had you in mind, that that's real. Yeah, so as we take the bread, just think about the last supper and and Jesus going, man, this this is my body. I just remember that that Jesus gave his literal body, that he actually became flesh, that he he feels what we feel. He has felt it before, that he is not unable to relate to us. And that's a miracle that God is that God has been human. So let's take the bread together. As we take the cup. Just as Jesus said that this is the blood that was poured out, this cup of juice for us just represents the blood that Jesus shed for our behalf, that we're not perfect, we can never be perfect, but Jesus gave us his life that we would never have to try to be, that he bridged the gap, and it was by giving up his real life and shedding his blood for our sins. So let's take the cup together, thank you Jesus.